0: Good morning, everyone. What a blessing to worship our God together. We are most blessed in Christ. And it's a blessing to be back with you. After a week at Kedron, it was a good time. We had, uh, we went through Micah 6.8. So we talked about what the Lord requires of us to do justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with our God. And it was uh, really good to talk to the kids and share the gospel and see them respond. By some giving their lives to him. So praise God for his word that's fruitful and it does not return to him void. Um, Now that the holidays are over, we are back on a full schedule. The women are meeting again on Wednesday. The Friday night studies are happening. And uh, next Sunday will be a family meeting, so a a, uh, just informational meeting after the church service. Um, And we'll talk more about the upcoming camp in April and the things that are being planned. So um, everyone's invited to hang around after the service for that as well. All right, well, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your wisdom. And thank you that we can draw near to you in faith, knowing that you are our God, our creator who loves us, who has provided everything that pertains to life and godliness, and, and that we have Jesus our Savior, and the Holy Spirit who fills us and helps us, who comforts us and guides us into all truth. And so, Lord, we come to you now hungry. We come to you thirsty, needing uh, to hear your word. And thank you that it is our daily bread. It does sustain us. It does just strengthen us. And I pray that we would walk in light of the gospel. We would uh, live out the truth and believe your word, believe that Jesus is risen. He is above all and And that you're hearing us now as we gather, your eyes are upon us. And thank you that you look upon us with grace and mercy in Jesus name. Amen. So we'll be in Ecclesiastes 8, if you'll turn there. And it's a good thing. We come to a place where anything that we perceive as good or bad, we recognize it's from the hand of God who is good. And it's really only by faith in God, we can accept this and agree with it. Um, There's this tendency that we might have to ascribe good things that we perceive as good or beneficial in our lives to God. Like, oh, that's a blessing from God. And then when something bad happens, we're like, oh, that's from the devil or, or I must be cursed or something from God. Uh, But Job in the Old Testament, he realized that both good and bad comes from God. And he, he praised him that his suffering and loss, though meant for evil, God would use it for good. In the end, God wanted to bless him and reveal his mercy and compassion, not just to Job, but to us. So when we go through trials, when we go through difficulties, we can know that God is for us. He's with us. He won't forsake us and that he is a savior. And we can really expend a lot of effort in trying to wrangle over the source of our ills or the injustice. When really we ought to focus on how we should respond in light of the gospel, in light of God's sovereignty and power. And I think at a fundamental level, we can obsess over these unsearchable questions because we think we can save ourselves if we stop doing something or we start doing something else. Like we just want the trial to come to an end and we want to expedite that. We want to bring it to a close and we think it depends upon us and how we behave when really it's in God's hands. We are in his hands and we can trust him. We can rest there. There's comfort there in the hands of our Lord, our living hope. Solomon, he was given more wisdom than any man. And really it's the wise who realize how ignorant they are. And in this chapter by wisdom, he realizes there's a lot. He could not understand about God and his ways. The law put out blessings for obedience and cursing for the evildoer, but it didn't pan out the way that Solomon expected. And you would think with his great wisdom, He would just say, oh yeah, I could have predicted that, but he couldn't. And he couldn't see why the righteous were suffering and the evildoers were praised. And he just, he couldn't reconcile it in his mind. And he didn't have what we have, uh, where Isaiah 55, eight says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways, my ways says the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That prophecy came after Solomon and God's like, Solomon knew this, but now we, we can know it doubly that, yeah, God's ways are higher than ours. He is working to do something and accomplish good things, even in what seems bad and what is bad. We just look to Christ on the cross. That's a bad thing, but God redeemed it. God would use it. And it was his purpose from the beginning. So praise the Lord. We have Jesus as the way, and he is wisdom for us. So Ecclesiastes 8.1, who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. You ever had that light bulb moment where you're like, oh, you're like, I don't understand the sternness of your face. You're a little, but then, oh, I get it. I understand something now makes sense to you. And I think there's a lot of times during my walk with Jesus, where there were things I was familiar with, like I was familiar with the passage, but I didn't understand how, how it impacted my life in a personal and a profound way. And God brought a revelation of wisdom. Have you guys ever seen the miracle worker? It's an old black and white movie about the life of Helen Keller. She was born in 1880. Uh, At 19 months, she contracted an illness that rendered her deaf and blind and she grew up a very um, wild and undisciplined child. And at about seven years of age, there was this epiphany she had at the water pump, where her teacher had been playing a game with her and signing letters into her palm. And as she pumped the water over her hand, she realized water has a name. This is what I've been drinking and touching my whole life. And it opened up the world of language to her. She said in her autobiography, I knew that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. That was her perspective of that moment when she recognized she connected water with a name because she went on to receive a formal education She's the first blind deaf person to earn a bachelor of arts degree at university. She was an author, a speaker, and her unlocking language gave her an opportunity to learn about God and to proclaim God. And Jesus Christ, he's the living word who has come to earth, who opens the eyes of the blind. He opens the ears of the deaf. He raises the dead to life so that we can know God and walk with him. And because Jesus is wisdom for us every day provides opportunities for life altering, transforming uh, revelations from God, because we can understand him. Now we can hear his voice. As we read his word, we can be prompted and convicted and changed. We can read the, the a familiar passage that we've read a hundred times and suddenly have that light bulb moment. We're like, wow, this is awesome. God is speaking to me. This is what I needed to hear today. And I didn't even know. I mean, God gives us such joy, hope, and freedom that we can have our prayers answered, that we can operate in a spiritual gift. We can suffer wrong and still have joy in our heart. And we're like, that's only God that could help me to love this person and actually want to love them when they've wronged me. And then to realize how good and faithful God has been all our lives. Even when we doubted him and when we hated him, he's been faithful. So one word in the scripture can enlighten our eyes, can give us that light bulb moment. Like, wow, God is real. God is speaking. And to understand him, what a blessing. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 2. I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment, because for every matter, there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. Solomon urged his hearers to obey the King as unto the Lord, something we see in the New Testament as well. Like your submission to God is shown by submission to every ordinance of government and these governing authorities, they've been established by God. And we can submit to those ordinances as unto him. And I think as a king, Solomon has a lot of wisdom about how, what is proper decorum in the presence of a king, even though Australia does not operate as a monarchy, there's a lot we can glean from this because there's no, in our government, no consolidation of power into a single person, right? It's, it's spread out among elected officials and people in parliament. And he's saying, entering the King's presence and leaving the King's presence. Don't take that lightly the way you come in. If you are haughty and proud, or if you leave suddenly without being dismissed, you take your life into your hands. So be careful when you come into the presence of a King, the man who has your life in his hands, who just says the word and your life is over. So he says, be careful, be careful when you approach a King to slight him, to disrespect him. It could cost you everything. And no one is above the word of the king who has the power of death and life. But everyone who obeys him, it says they are kept from harm. He will protect them. He will take vengeance upon their enemies. My mind goes to Esther, how she courageously and bravely went before King Ahasuerus to plead for the Jewish nation. But she didn't go in hastily, did she? She heard about the problem. The edict that had gone out from the king. She said, fast for three days, everyone in Shushan, my maidens and I will do the same. Then I will go to the king, even though it could cost me my life. And then when she went in, she didn't immediately go, oh, king, save my people. She received grace in his sight and then said, I'll, I would like to invite you to a meal, to a feast of wine. And then she didn't even say anything. Then she waited till the proper time. And then the king says, well, what's your request? She says, I want my people to be saved. And then she was shown favor while Haman was destroyed. So she took a stand against evil. She had an idea of time and judgment. She followed the Lord's leading and he protected her. And since we are to show rulers um, such honor and reverence, how much more worthy is God that we should be careful in the way we approach him? Um, Let's not imagine that because God has become flesh in the form of Jesus Christ and calls us friends by his grace, that we ought to treat him like a mate. Um, He humbled himself to be our equal, but we're not worthy to even touch his sandal strap. John the Baptist said, Ecclesiastes previously five, two Solomon said this, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And it got me thinking, do we pray, do our intercessions to God, are they in line with that God is in control, that God can actually do something about our problem and that he knows what to do already without us telling him our our actions when we are not around other people Are they consistent with the fact that he sees us and knows what we're doing and what we're talking about or what we're looking at. And so let him show us that we need to have a life that's lived out before the Lord, the God who knows us. And if we are to avoid our mouths to be speaking rashly before men, how much more before God? Because those who are truly humble before God will be humble before people. It was that passage in one John four verse 20. It says, if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he does not, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. So if you are truly humble before God, you must be humble before men. That is evidence of the condition of your heart. So it just gives some, uh, a little, a glimpse into something we don't even know fully the wickedness that can be in our own hearts, but let's live our lives for the King of Kings, Jesus, uh, and apply our hearts to wisdom. Ecclesiastes eight, verse seven, for he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. And no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. Even kings like Solomon, who have great understanding, they don't know what the future holds. It's like uh you can have power and authority, but there's a lot out of your control, like the weather. There's things that we can't control. Uh and, and the fact that we can be amazed, we can be astonished, it shows that we don't know when or what will happen. When you hear the news and something shocks you, uh, it shows that we don't know everything. Uh, a week ago, there was this cool breeze blowing, it was a bit stuffy in the house, so we the opened up the doors, and there was this enormous explosion in the street, a, like lightning came down and struck right outside our house. Every wall inside the house was bright white, and it was just like, bang! And we were, whoa, that was crazy looking out like what, where did, did, cause it just hit right outside and we had walked Laura and I were walking and we was like, those clouds look dark, but we could not have predicted that there would be a bolt of lightning, how many or where it would hit, but it was like, wow, so unexpected. And it's like that. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where it's going to happen or when. And even if someone had said, I know there's a storm blowing in, you couldn't have said how many bolts of lightning would strike. Solomon observed that no one has power over their own spirit. So we can't know everything and we don't have all power either. On the day of your death, you can't retain your spirit as much as you might want to. We know we're mortal. We know one day we're going to die, but we don't know how and we don't know when it will happen. So it's inevitable, but unpredictable. There would be some who die of a, in an accident or of an illness and others who have a chronic lifelong condition could outlive everyone. So we're powerless to retain our souls when God requires them of us. And like a king does not release soldiers in a time of war. So wickedness cannot provide an escape from God. He's like, there's no end to that war. You will be called on uh, to appear before the Lord and be judged. And there is no stopping that it is inevitable. The wicked may not believe in God, yet all will answer to him. We have no power to resist him, but rather being. So instead of being depressed about our powerlessness or our ignorance as Christians, we rejoice that God has overcome sin. He has overcome death and we can be glad to know that God knows all things that we are kept safely by him. You've heard the cliche. It's not what you know, but who you know, well, our ignorance and powerlessness is swallowed up in the God we know who knows us, he loves us and he calls us by name. And we know that he has a new name in store for us as well, that he will reveal to us uh, in the eternal state. We, We naturally tend to place our faith in all the wrong things, namely ourselves or others or our experience or our abilities or our knowledge. And our ability to reason or to charm or our our network or our resources, our experience. And when when we are proved to be insufficient, we're overwhelmed. And what do you do when you're overwhelmed? Personally, I tend in my flesh to get frustrated or angry or complain. I might lash out. I might want to give up. But God wisely allows our illusion of control to crumble, to teach us, to acknowledge he's in control and to gladly place our hand, our life in his hands and say, I'm going to look to you rather than the problem. I'm going to look to your word rather than myself or others. I'm going to trust and rely upon you because you are my savior and my king. Nothing happens without you knowing it. We can rest there knowing that our savior hears us. He answers us and he lives. Ecclesiastes eight, verse nine. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. So by his wisdom, Solomon was unable to work out this enigma, how wickedness can go unpunished, And be conveniently ignored. The one who rules over another can oppress and hurt them. And also he can be corrupted and destroyed by this unchecked power. Without the knowledge and the fear of God, all suffer whether you're in a position of power or if you are at the mercy of the merciless. Now it's true what Solomon says with, with increased wisdom comes increased sorrow because you realize that the problems are beyond your, your scope to help. It's just beyond you. You see problems in the world. You see problems in one person's life that you cannot do anything about. And it can just depress us. Um, But there's an antidote for our weakness, our powerlessness to help people or change them. Our God is able, and this is what he does. He delights to do this in the parable, of the good Samaritan, a priest and a Levite, when that man was beaten on the road to Jericho and left for dead, it says they passed by on the other side. The fact they passed by on the other side suggests that they saw him and they intentionally avoided him. They ignored his condition. Now, if this happened in real life, there might be a time where you're like, you know, he's too far gone. I really can't help him. Or you're trying to find help and you can't find him. You're trying to find someone who can render medical aid and just no supplies or there's no person that can help. The world's problems and our problems are too much for us. And it's good for us to realize that. And instead of ignoring our pain or needs that God's br- God brings our attention, let's seek him. Let's rely on him to sustain us and to see, Lord, how can I be your hands and feet to help? How can I assist others in their time of need? The New, New Living Translation, it renders Ecclesiastes 8.10 in a different way. It says, I have seen wicked people buried with honor, yet they were the very ones who frequented the temple and are now praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. This too is meaningless. So he's confounded that these wicked people were held in honor, that those guilty of murdering the prophets of God would have monuments built in their honor. And we see this with the Sadducees and Pharisees and the high priests who condemned Jesus, right? I believe that if Caiaphas or Annas had died of natural causes at the time when Jesus did, he, they would have received greater honor than the king of kings who humbled himself and died uh, humiliated on a cross, right? That he would be so savagely treated and mocked and scorned. And like, they weren't even thinking about burying him. They would have, they would have just thrown him, thrown his carcass to the side. But Annas and Caiaphas, they would have had great pomp at their funerals. So he's like, I don't understand this. Why is this the case? Why does this happen? He realized how empty and meaningless it is to praise the undeserving. And though they're not held accountable by men for their crimes, God will see to it. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow because he does not fear before God the lack of swift judgment and sentencing for sin and emboldens people to continue in their wicked ways. And we see this playing out in the scripture before he died. Solomon was told by David to bring two men to justice, Joab and Shimei. Joab had killed righteous men in a time of peace. And many times David's like you, you sons of uh, Zariah are too much for me. Like you guys are a lot to handle. Joab had killed Abner because he had killed his brother and because David did not take swift sentence against that murder. um, He also killed Absalom and Amasa, two of David's sons, one of his sons and then uh, another relative. And so Joab continued in his wickedness to the point where when David was unable to really act as king anymore, he was getting older that he supported Adonijah's rise to power. So it's because he didn't deal with the problem and he just let it continue. He's like, ah, this is too much for me. Then Joab continued his murderous rampage. So man's wickedness, that's the cause of countless problems, but lenience and negligence in judgment by those in authority, it contributes to moral decline. And Solomon observed this. Those who were unpunished after doing wrong, it said their hearts were fully set in them to do evil. And that word set that phrase, it's to fill, to consecrate as priest, devote, carry out set or mount. So it's like when sentence against evil is not carried out, it's like they are consecrated to do evil. They are like a priest of wickedness. And a priest in the temple was someone whose life was sanctified and set apart to serve God. And so those who are not, there's no sentence brought against them that they are actually set, like kind of like concrete that's poured into a form and it sets. They are set to do evil. They are more inclined to continue in their wickedness. So the implication is swift discipline, appropriate consequences. They have the potential to reform to shape people, to do good rather than evil. The heart of every person is naturally bent towards sin, but ignoring bad behavior, just complaining about it without consequences or neglecting swift judgment. It hardens people in sinful ways. Now, most of us were not involved with the justice system in Australia, but there is a practical application for us personally as parents and employers and managers. So if God's placed you in a position of authority, As a parent, let's say you do your child a disservice to ignore disobedience, lies, deceit, willful rebellion. God's given us his standard of righteousness in the scripture. And it's, it's your responsibility as a parent to establish boundaries with consequences that are appropriate and clearly communicated and followed through. That's something that God has uh, demonstrated for us. We see that Bible, the Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. How exactly the rod is administered in your household is between you, God, and your spouse, but the neglect of prompt discipline will lead your child to continue in sinful choices and attitudes that God will hold them to account for. And so in the neglect of loving discipline of a child, it comes at a high cost. To both parents and children, and let's believe that what God says about discipline, his word is true and not neglect real consequences when we enforce sin, even if it pains us to do this, because you have to reinforce your words with action. God just doesn't give us a talking to when we have done what's wrong. He allowed David's life to be filled with consequences because of his, his sin. And uh, discipline and correction, it's more than words. And we see that in God's scripture. So I just encourage you, if you're a manager and there's a policy and you complain about people's, you know, negligence to do their job, well, how about you following the policy and enforcing it? Enforce the policy and it may be difficult. It may be putting yourself out there. But this is something God calls us to do and realize that if we don't actually carry through with a negative consequence, we shouldn't be surprised when people are set in their ways to continue disregarding the uh, policy. Solomon witnessed people literally get away with murder like Joab for decades, but it didn't mean that murder was right or acceptable. The wise won't be um, encouraged to sin by the wicked. Um, But we see in the scripture, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The the wicked may prosper for a season on earth, very short time in the light of eternity. But those who fear God, we have an enduring future with him. I'm really encouraged by Psalm 37, 37, 38. It says, Mark the blameless man and observe the upright for the future of that man is peace, but the transgressors shall be destroyed together the future of the wicked shall be cut off because of Jesus. We have a bright and glorious future. We can know the future of that person is peace because we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is our peace. Ecclesiastes eight fourteen. There is a vanity which occurs on earth that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink and be merry for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. Despite Solomon's wisdom, which was greater than any person before or after him, he was unable to arrive at a satisfying conclusion considering the just and the wicked. He said the godly they're facing troubles and the wicked their, their prosperity is exceeding the just. Why is this happening? And he struggled why bad things happen to good people from a biblical view, that question, even asking it, it ignores the goodness of God and his redemptive purposes that he can use what's intended for evil and use it for good. He can bring eternal salvation. And some people look at the lives of Christians who suffer like Job's wife, and they wonder, what's the point of trusting and serving God who treats his servants so badly? What's in it for you? Curse God and die. But Job's like, that is foolish talk. That's a foolish thing to say. In the sight of God, there is none good. No, not one. Yet at the expense of his own son who died for us on Calvary, he's made a way for sinners to be righteous forever and co-heirs with him. And so in light of the gospel, we serve him not to be blessed, but because we have all blessings in him. He doesn't dangle the carrot of salvation or righteousness, peace or joy in front of us. If you do this, this could be yours, you know, chase that. He's already given us all blessing in the Holy spirit who has filled us, who has redeemed. We are redeemed by him. He helps us. He empowers us to trust and obey and nothing can separate us from the love of God. No trial or trouble can uh, divorce us from his grace and goodness. And so our eyes, like we sang today, they're to be fixed on Jesus, looking to him, the author and finisher of our faith, not with envy or covetousness at those who have what we don't, or those who are spared from suffering that God by his by his wisdom has allowed us to face. Jesus suffered for us. So we can be looking at others. We can be looking at our own suffering. Well, how about Jesus suffering for you? It says, consider him, lest you be weary in your souls. Consider Christ. Think about him. All he went through for you and me, for the world that would reject him. Turn in your Bibles to one Peter chapter five, verse 1 Peter five, verse 10. It's it reads, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has called us. He has chosen us to salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We've been made righteous and having been born again, we have a new identity that trumps our family, our ethnicity, our nationality as children of God, citizens of heaven. We have the promise of abundant life that is, and is to come through faith in Jesus. And this life with its triumphs and toils, it's all been provided by God. And so this time that we spend on earth, it's a season That will include, uh, suffering where it says after you have suffered a while, not forever, it may feel like forever, but it's just a while. It could be a long time, but know that it's God is working through it to do what to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. You know, the God who redeemed you, the God who has provided atonement for your sin, he has plans and purposes for you. It's kind of like we are a garage find a rare and valuable car that's been rusted out. The interior is full of mice. It's half covered with debris. All the hoses and tires are shot. You, you couldn't start it. The battery's flat before we were Satan's property. He owned us. He, we have been totally neglected. It's like, couldn't it, We could not fulfill our purpose, but now we have a new owner who's found us, he's dug us out of the rubble, he delights to restore us, and he happens to be the one who designed and manufactured this one-of-a-kind car. He knows what it's for, and it's going to take a lot of work, but he loves to work. He loves to do good work, and he just doesn't want to return us to a showroom condition to make us a trophy, He doesn't want us to be a showpiece to look at, but he wants it. So when he touches the accelerator, we roar to life. When he taps on those brakes, we respond sensitively to him. We're responsive to when he steers us, when he's guiding us somewhere that we are like, let's go. And when he says, stop, we stop. We're guided by him in everything. To become all he created us to be because he loves us, because he cares for us. He's designed us and he wants us to be with him forever. You know, when you're restoring a car, there's a lot of cutting. There's a lot of bolts breaking. There's grinding and sanding and polishing. There's a lot that goes into restoring a car. And if the car had feelings, it would hurt. (laughs) It would hurt a lot to have all that rust cut out and have those fenders taken off and new bumpers put on things that have been their original. Now they're changed and it's hard, but in trials, we can settle. We can rest in Christ. We can be confident that God is protecting us, that he has good purposes and plans as he's perfecting us, making us more like him because we're not just something he can have a joy ride with. He wants us to be with him forever As his sons and daughters, he's redeemed us. He's changing us. Now, Solomon, he goes back to what he said previously in light of the just and wicked, not getting what they deserve. He said, the best thing you can do is just enjoy life. Um, Enjoy what you have while you have it. Eat, drink, and be merry. Find advice, but it doesn't solve the problem that life is meaningless and empty without God. Because remember, Ecclesiastes is written from that worldly viewpoint of, you know, like life is meaningless in itself, but it's through the lens of God and Christ and the gospel that we realize that life is worth living because he is our life. Ecclesiastes 8, 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Solomon thought, if I could just get more wisdom, if I could just learn a bit more, the secrets of God's ways will become clear to me. But sleepless nights, long days, he got no closer to the truth. He's like, I can't figure it out. It's so above me what God is doing right now. He was unable to discover the purpose and meaning of life, the ultimate meaning of life under the sun. And he said, by wisdom, no one can find out what's happening or what's going to happen. And we don't need to be the wisest person to know that this is true. Solomon is spot on. We put a lot of stock in our ability to reason and to understand. And this assumes that, So we, we, we imagine if we simply had the answer to my question, I would be fine. I will be content if God will answer my question or do this thing that I want him to do. But this assumes that we're willing to receive his answer because we're standing in judgment of God. How many people are given a terminal diagnosis and refuse to accept it? Refuse to accept the, um, the treatment options that are placed before them. And if they accept it, does it follow? They agree with it being good, that it's good because it's been used by God to accomplish his purposes. This requires faith in God, doesn't it? The fear of God. And instead of answering all of our questions asked from ignorance, God does things that brings us to the end of our understanding. So we might learn to trust him and to see him as the only answer We need to find purpose and satisfaction in life. He's bringing us to that place. He's refining us to like, you know, I accept this terrible thing as from the Lord, because the things that are intended for evil, God intends for good. He's able to redeem them. He's able to use them. God did not give Job or Solomon dot point answers to their questions. They had a lot of questions. God didn't say, well, okay, this is your answer. Number one, two, three, be content. He, he provides himself. He revealed himself to them. Final passage in Romans eleven thirty three. If you'll turn there, we have Paul, the apostle writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Now there's, here's a man that God revealed himself to in person, Jesus along the road to Damascus. He was taught the gospel by the Lord. He was given divine revelation. He's talked about being caught up to the third heaven that he saw things that is not lawful to repeat. And after discussing some of the ways of God and the things God had done, this is his conclusion led by the Holy Spirit in Romans 11:33, O Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. God's thoughts, God's ways are infinitely greater and above ours. No one can know what God is thinking and no one among us can give God counsel like to counsel God in what he should do or how it would be beneficial to do anything because he's so awesome. He's beholden to no man. He is almighty He is glorious. He knows all things and the righteous judge of all the earth is beholden to know he doesn't have to justify his actions or explain himself, but he's created all things, including us as new creations in Christ of him through him and to him. I think it's good for us to, to demonstrate the wisdom of Solomon because Christ is wisdom for us to realize how little we know, And the greatness of the God we know and who knows us. He's been revealed in scripture, in our lives by Jesus Christ and the infinite power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So praise God for the riches of his wisdom, that Jesus would be wisdom for us. And let's glorify him forever by humbling ourselves before him today. Saying, Lord, your will be done. I'm going to trust you. You're using this to strengthen, to perfect, to settle me. Let's rest right there. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus. And thank you for your wisdom, that he is wisdom for us. He is our peace. Thank you that you have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, that you have given us an abundant life, not just in heaven, but right now through faith in you. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who fear you, who are not always questioning you or doubting you or, or trying to. Uh, counsel you, but to take your word to heart, not as counsel, but as a directive that we would trust and believe your promises that we would humble ourselves before you and tremble at your word for upon this one, you will look the one who has a contrite heart, the one who is humble before you. Lord, you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And I thank you for the, even the sufferings of this life, Lord, that you redeem them for your good purposes. And I pray that you would quicken us by your spirit to receive this truth today and to walk in it in Jesus name. Amen.